Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. Okay, so the finale of Samson. I mean, we all know how this is going to end. There's no surprises, really. Um, but hopefully, we'll learn a few things along the way. You know, even as I was reading today, yesterday and today, and, and thinking about it, I, I saw some things I'd never seen before. So I'm, I'm quite looking forward to where we go this evening. So Judges chapter 16, we'll read it through. And then I'll pick some stuff out for us to chew on. <clears throat> Judges 16. From verse 4, sometime later, he, this is Samson, fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh reeds, it says in one version, that have been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh reeds that had not been dried and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the thongs, or the reeds, as easy as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, You have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, If anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then, with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if there were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, Until now you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, If you weave the seven braids of my hair into the fabric on a loom and tighten it with a pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric, and tightened it with a pin. Again she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pin and the loom with the fabric. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I've been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines. Come back once more. He has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. Having put him to sleep on her lap, she called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair, and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. 
Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our god has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their god, saying, Our god has delivered our enemy into our hands, and the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they brought Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. While they stood him against, among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more. And let me, with one blow, get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on one and his left on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led or judged Israel for 20 years. So we get to this bit and it's just so sad. I feel so sad for Samson. Just so sad for a man who had an incredible call on his life. And while he did do, remember we, we talked about this in one of the weeks, that his, uh, his mission, his calling was to start the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines. So he did do that, but he could have done so much more. He could have done so much more. So let's work through some of the, some of the things that stood out to me anyway. Um, verse 4, sometime later he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. I decided it'd be interesting to look to see what Sorek meant, because it, it doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture, the valley of Sorek. So I looked it up, and it means choice vines. Choice vines. And then I had this thought. Bearing in mind the vow that Samson had, the Nazarite vow, let me just read some of the rules to you of the Nazarite again. So this is, in Numbers, the rules for a Nazarite. If a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite, he must abstain from wine and other fermented drink. He must not drink vinegar made from wine or from other fermented drink. He must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as he is a Nazarite, he must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. So my question to myself as I was reading it uh, today, it was actually, if this is his vow, that he's not allowed to drink, eat, touch, be near grapes, why is he going to a place called Choice Vines? Why is he there? I mean, surely there needs to be something in him that says, this is too close. 
this is too close. The that this place means choice vines. So it, it would have been known for um, the manufacture and the growing of grapes and stuff. Why is he even there? His attitude should have been, there is nothing here for me. There is nothing here for me. And I think as people who follow Jesus, there are times where we need to recognize those things, those places, or those thoughts, or those conversations where we can say to ourselves, actually, there's nothing here for me. There's nothing here for me that's good. A silly example, but uh, I won't tell you where I was, but I had lunch last week out and, uh, with some work colleagues. And um, we never usually have dessert when we go to this place. But for some reason, we decided we'd have dessert today. So one of the desserts was a strawberry cheesecake. I quite like cheesecake. Very particular about cheesecake, though. It needs to be good. It needs to not be frozen or cheap cheesecake. It needs to be good cheesecake. So I kind of regretted ordering it because I thought it's not going to be good. And then it came, and then it was not good. It was not good. The base was cornflakes. What is that? I mean, what, what is that? The base was cornflakes. And when I say cornflakes, I don't mean cornflakes mushed together so that it's like a base. I literally mean cornflakes. And then the middle bit was whipped cream, sweetened whipped cream. So there was no cream cheese in it at all. And then there was some strawberries on the top. Some of you know me well, and you're looking at me with very sad faces because that's how I felt. Very sad. So I tried it. Put a few spoonfuls in my mouth, and then halfway through eating it, I had this very thought, there is nothing here for me. There is nothing here for me. And I did what is very unusual for Nick to do with food. I, I actually spat it out of my mouth. Not, you know, in front of people, but I went to a bin discreetly, and I got rid of it from my mouth. It wasn't disgusting, but I thought, I am wasting calories by consuming whatever this is supposed to be, when it should be good. There is nothing here for me. And I wonder how, I wonder how uh, strong we would be, how mature we would be, how we would demonstrate growth and connection to Jesus if we had that same kind of attitude to the things that we know are not good for us. Our Valley of Sorek may not be an actual place, or it may be an actual place that we think, I really shouldn't be going to that place. It could be a particular way of thinking. It could be a TV show. It could be a conversation that we, we know we have over and over and over again with ourselves. It could be a person. Whatever it is, we need to be strong enough, unlike Samson, strong enough to say, this has nothing for me, and so I am going to stay away from it. Not to convince ourselves, I'm going to be safe, or I can do this, or it'll be fine, or this is not the issue, as long as I stay away from the real issue and all the other things that we come up with. We need to be strong enough to stay away from the stuff that we know will lead us to a place that's not good. And it'll be different for all of us. So he sees this woman... And he falls in love with her. And, uh, and, and we can see from, from the way that the narrative goes that they, they clearly have some form of relationship. But from the way that I read it, it would seem that relationship is a little bit one-sided. 
It clearly says that Samson loved this woman, but it doesn't really communicate to me anyway that she felt the same about Samson. So I wonder if it was a bit of a celebrity thing, or oh, this guy, Samson, he's the judge of Israel. He's quite famous. I'm going to hang out with him, see what he can do for my status. Who knows? But he loved her. And it would seem that the love he felt for her was not reciprocated anyway, in any way. She was just using him. And I'm not saying that we, we live in a way where we don't allow our heart to feel anything. But we do need to be people who guard our hearts. Guarding our hearts is an important thing to do. The Bible says in Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for it affects everything you do. Everything you do. Now, guarding your heart doesn't mean that you switch yourself off and that you shut yourself off from every emotional interaction, from every opportunity. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is that when we guard our hearts, we ensure that there is a filter, that everything goes through a filter. The word here that says in uh, Proverbs, guard your heart, that word also means to preserve and to guard from danger. And so when we guard our hearts, we're not, we're not removing ourselves from any emotion. What, what we're doing is we're saying, I'm going to protect my heart from things that aren't going to do my heart any good. It would have done Samson a bit of good, I think, if at different points in his life, he'd had that conversation with himself and thought, is this good? I may feel this way, and I may be drawn to a person in this way, or something that I see entices me, but is this good for me? Sometimes we need to, uh, we need to make cold, hard decisions about things that we face rather than just responding to what happens in our hearts, which is why it is important that we guard our hearts. This is something Samson didn't do. And so he falls in love with this woman, and he goes to her, and then it says the lords of the Philistines came to her, and they said, we see that uh, this Samson dude is hanging out with you, so what we'd like you to do is to see if you can find out the secret of his strength. The rulers of the Philistines. So the, the Philistines were divided into five areas, if you didn't know. Divided into five areas. There's Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gaza, and Gath. You may have heard of Gath. Gath was where uh, Goliath came from. Yep. We talked about Ashkelon in the first session. Ashkelon would have been a place that Samson went to and killed those 30 people that we never heard anything else about, so we assumed it was some kind of ninja-like, quiet People just randomly appearing naked because Samson killed them and took their clothes. And Gaza, we know, that Samson had had an impact on because that's where they locked him in the city when he went to visit the prostitute. And then he picked up the gate and everything to do with the gate and took it and left it up a mountain. So we know that these, some of these rulers have been personally affected by the things that Samson has done. And they really want, they really want some way to get to him some way to, to, to understand or to find out what his power is because they can see that the things that he's doing are not normal. They want to know what the secret is and they realize that they can use this woman to find out what the secret is. <coughs> they can see that something happens 
in Samson. They can see that, well, obviously, because he does these incredible feats of strength. And because of their beliefs, because of their pagan understanding, they assume that there is something else that is going on here that they want to find out. So they come to her and they bribe her. It says each of them were going to give her 13 kilograms of silver. I did some dodgy maths. And uh, I say dodgy maths because, you know, the price of silver changes all the time. It's about 40 grand that they they offered her in total. 40,000 pounds. So they said to her, "If if you find out Samson's secret and you tell us what it is, we will give you 40,000 pounds. So that's a lot of money to us. You have somebody came to you and said, if you do this for me, I'll give you 40,000 pounds. I mean, you think about what the thing was. Um, Hopefully you think hard about what the thing was. In Bible times, um, five and a half thousand shekels is the same as 1,100 denarius. And in James chapter 12, verse 5, it says that 300 denarius was equal to a year's wages. So this is wages for this woman for 36 years. So this is a small fortune. This is, not, this is not a little bit of money. This is a small fortune. And she decides to take them up on their offer. She was persuaded to give up the relationship that she was in for the money. And it, it made me ask myself the question as I was reading this. What is your price, Nick? What is your price? What would distract you from the thing that you love? And particularly in relation, not relation to Samson, obviously, particularly in relation to God, what would distract you from loving God and receiving God's love? It probably wouldn't be an obvious thing. It could be a sneaky thing, like family or like disappointment. Past experiences, hard times, respect, the opportunity for a position, what is it that could be your price to give up the thing that you supposedly love? I say supposedly because I'm not convinced Delilah loved Samson. Delilah knew that they would hurt and that they would subdue Samson because they said, tell us a secret so that we could subdue him. They, they They weren't hiding anything from her, but she still decided to take the opportunity that they offered to her. What is your price? I hope that that none of us in this room have a price that we can think, "Mm, yeah, if this came along, that would persuade me. But it's worth thinking about what are the things that are distracting? What are the things that distract me from my connection to God, my interaction with God? Not just giving to God, but being in a position where I receive from him as well. What could be a distraction for me? And so Delilah starts. And this is where, I mean, I'm annoyed with Samson anyway. But this is particularly where I get annoyed with Samson. Because seriously, Samson, she asks you three times. She asks you, the question is, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not a very subtle question. It's, it's quite a straightforward question. And Samson doesn't seem to get what's happening at all. He doesn't seem to see what's happening here. And so she asks him the question, and he tells her a made-up story, and then she tries it. I mean, for goodness sake, 
She wants to know how you can be tied up and subdued. You give her a fake thing, and then she does that thing. At some point, you need to think, actually, this is, this is not going well. She's clearly trying to tie me up and subdue me, so this is not good. But he ignores the signs. He ignores the signs. She keeps asking him. He keeps making things up. And then every time he makes something up, he, he, he falls asleep. And then she says the same thing. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And so he wakes up and he snaps the, the, the reeds or he snaps the rope or he runs off with the loo with his hair still weaved into the loo. I mean, at some point, Samson... You need to figure out what is happening here. This woman is trying to find out your secret because she does not care about you. But he wanted so much to be with Delilah. He loved her and he wanted to be with her. And sometimes when our emotions are out of control or when our emotions are not in control or when we've not guarded our hearts, we can make excuses for things that we need to not make excuses for. And he could have, he could have, and this is just me thinking out loud, he could have rationalized in his head, she just wants to play, she's just curious, she just wants to know the secret of my strength. He could have rationalized all of those things, but the reality of what was happening is this woman was trying to find a way to betray him. If we don't make hard decisions in the cold light of day about the quality of the people we want to spend our lives with before we get there, we can end up in a position where we have lost our way a little bit and we are willing to make compromises. I once read a quote. I should have written it down, really. Let me see if I can get it right. It says, before, before a man knows what he can do, he must be sure of what he won't do. Before a man knows what he can do, he must be sure of what he won't do. And for each of us, there needs to be a sense where we know these are the things that I won't do. These are, these are my rules for life. These are my barriers. These are my boundaries. These are my walls. These are the lines that I won't cross. Because if we don't make those rules and we're all a bit fluid, someone else will make those rules for us. <coughs> and we'll end up in a position where probably we don't want to be which is why it's important to make these decisions. And it's important to make these decisions in the cold light of day when there isn't an emotional entanglement, there isn't anything happening just in the cold light of day. These are the things that I will not do. Samson finds himself in a place of continual compromise and ignored the signs. Let me take a little side, a little sideways step. <coughs> Because something that Delilah says is true. And uh, I just want to, to make the point, really. She keeps saying to him, you, you, you've made a fool of me. You've lied to me. You've not told me the truth. So she keeps saying these things to him. But then right towards the end of the, the kind of interaction with Samson, verse 15, she says, how can you say I love you? when you won't confide in me? How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me, when your heart is not with me? And of all the things that she did and said, this one is valid. This one is true. Because if you are in a relationship with someone that you love deeply, and there is a, a level of intimacy with that person, then there needs to be 
There needs to be no secrets. I've said, Lisa and I have done um, lots of many pre-marriage courses with people. It's always very entertaining to do that with people because you can scare them a little bit. But it's fun. Fun scare. Just fun scare. We realize that we can be a bit bantery and a bit intense, but it's fun. And, uh, and I've always said this to people. There should not be, for Lisa and I, there should not be anyone on the planet who knows about stuff that's happening in my life and Lisa doesn't know. Shouldn't be anyone on the planet who knows, who, who knows something about me that Lisa doesn't know because that is not a level of intimacy that I'm willing to accept. So that there should never be a time where Lisa has a conversation with someone and they say, oh, Nick told me about some stuff that's happening in his life and she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. That should never happen because this is the woman that I love and this is the woman that I'm in a relationship with. And so there has to be that deep level of intimacy so that there are any secrets between us. And when Delilah says this to Samson, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me, when you won't confide in me? That is true. Of all the things she says, that is true. Unfortunately, it didn't go the other way. Because what, she, what, what was in her heart was there's a room over there with some guys who are waiting to take you down. <coughs> Excuse me. God said something similar once. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, God said, It says, The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Now, this, this verse challenges me on a deep level, particularly in my role as a worship leader. Because I know, <laughs> and I've been challenged on this many times, so when I say this, I'm not having a go, I'm talking to myself. I know that I can stand in a service with my arms raised and I can sing some words that I don't mean. That deep down, I don't mean. And we need to be careful with these things. Now, there's nothing wrong with singing, singing songs or singing words and, and all of that. I don't want you to get all paranoid about the songs that we sing. But I do want you to think about moving from a place where we're just engaged in our heads and with our lips to making sure that we're also engaged with our hearts. And that even if, and this is what I'd encourage any, any person singing in any, um, in any worship service, even if you are not sure, you just say, God, I am not sure, but I want this to be true. So please help me as I sing this, to, that it would do something in me so that it will be true. So easy to say great things about the way that we feel about God, and then our lives don't actually match our words. It's very easy to do that. You know, when Judas betrayed Jesus, he didn't, he didn't it wasn't blatant that that's what was happening. If people looked on to what was happening there, they would have seen a student greeting his master in the completely acceptable way that students would greet their masters. If you didn't know what was happening, you would think nothing of it. But Jesus knew what was happening, and Judas knew what was happening. The kiss was the symbol to everyone else, this is the guy. So it looked like uh, he was greeting Jesus, but actually, it was a signal to the, to the guards, to the Roman soldiers, this is the guy that you want. 
And so Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And uh, it was not Easter time. I was walking somewhere and thinking about Judas. <laughs> Why do you think about Judas? Probably should have been thinking about Jesus instead. But I was thinking about Judas and thinking about worship. And I thought, God, have I, Jesus, have I betrayed you when I've said things, but my heart wasn't in it? Have I, have I betrayed you? Has there been that, that kind of, my lips are doing one thing, but my heart is doing something else? Because I don't want that. I don't want to disconnect between my words and my heart. I certainly don't want to disconnect between my words and my actions, because that is very, very important. And so the challenge really is to ensure that we have that intimacy with God by ensuring that what happens in our hearts is real, and that's what comes out of our mouths. That when we sing the songs, when we pray out loud, when we do all of those things, that it's coming from a place of true intimacy where we have truly connected with Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So that's a great place to start in developing our relationship with him. <coughs> so she said something that was true, Delilah. Well done. We'll give you a... Some kind of hi-fi for that, I suppose. I'm not sure you deserve it. <laughs> and so they go, they go through this question and answer thing where she says, tell me, and he makes something up. And verse 16, it says that he gives in to her nagging, which sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because that happened right at the beginning of his life with, his, with the first woman that he saw and he wanted, the woman of Timnah where he went to her and, and there was the, the riddle and they threatened her and then she nagged him for the story and he said that he gave in to her as well. So Samson gives in to Delilah. I found this interesting that instead of just saying no, he makes some stories up. So he lies, he makes some stories up. But I never noticed this before. But if you, if you look at the stories... He starts to get closer to the truth. So he talks about reeds at the beginning, which is nonsense. Then he talks about ropes. And then he talks about his hair. So he starts, he starts to get closer to the truth. He talks about his hair, mentions his hair. And Samson, honestly, why did you get hair, Samson? Now people have talked about Samson's strength being in his hair, but we all know that that's nuts. It's, the hair was just a symbol. Yeah, his hair was just a symbol of his vow. The hair was just a symbol of the fact that he was set apart by God to do a particular thing. The hair was just a symbol of his connection with God, of the calling that God had on his life. The hair wasn't where his strength was. His strength was in the connection that he had with God, in the vow that he had made, or that his parents had agreed to, uh, for his life. And so he mentions his hair, he mentions his hair being weaved, and then eventually she breaks him down and he tells her the truth. But I think way before this point, like I've said before, way before this point, Samson should have seen what was coming and he should have said, Delilah, you're not really in it for me. You just want to find out secrets about me. I feel like you want to know what subdues me. I've got a higher calling than this, so we're done. He should have cut her off. 
He should have cut her off. He should have made a tough choice and cut this lady out of his life. But he doesn't. He doesn't. And it leads to his downfall. In um, 1519, in 1519, there was an explorer called Hernando Cortes who left Spain and sailed away to explore the country, explore the planet, just wanted to find new worlds. <coughs> the king of Spain had financed his expedition and his, his, kind, of, his kind of brief, as, as it was, was to explore the new world and to come back with stuff. So um, he landed on, on what was Mexico, what is Mexico, and on all the people with him, the adventurers, they, they, they set out for, for the adventure of life. They set out to have a new life in this place. But it was hard because they traveled all the way across the ocean. Everything was new, jungly, difficult. It was difficult. And so some of the guys, some of his sailors, started to talk about, you know what, maybe we should just, we should just go back. We should just get on the ships and just go back. And, uh, and he heard about this, and he, uh, he decided to deal with it. And so he made this statement that has lived with me for a long time. He said, guys, burn the ships. Set fire to the ships. We're not going anywhere. And so they burnt the ships. So they couldn't leave. They had to crack on with life in the new world. Eventually, he would sail back, but they had to crack on with life in the new world. And it seems really drastic. But sometimes in our lives, we need to burn the ships. We need to see the things that are just, just not good for us, just pulling us back to a life that we knew before, just pulling us to a place of compromise, and maybe we need to just burn the ships. That's it. We're cutting off the opportunity to go back to the life that we once knew. But Samson doesn't do this. Samson... He basically gets brought to a choice. I can keep my secret and my relationship with God, or I can have Delilah. And he decides to choose Delilah. And so he tells her his secret. Now, there wasn't, as far as I'm aware, when the angel, and I probably should have checked really, but I don't remember when the angel giving the instructions to Samson's mom and dad, I don't think he said, and he is to tell no one. I don't think that's the deal. But in this instance, because of the things that Delilah was saying, it was clear that what she wanted wasn't just to know his secret. She wanted to know how to subdue him. And so he gives his secret away. And then Delilah calls the Philistines. and She says, come back. He's told me everything. There must have been something about his demeanor, something about the way that he was speaking that she thought, yeah, this time it's the truth. This time, this time I believe him. And so she puts him to sleep and she gets a guy in who shaves his hair off. And then she says the same thing again, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he wakes up and he thinks, I'll just do what I did before. And then the saddest verse in this whole story, probably one of the saddest verses in the Bible for me, it says, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. It's so sad. He did not know that the Lord had left him. 
I remember another sad verse. I don't know why I'm telling you this. But I remember where I was when I read it and it just grabbed me and I was so upset about it. It was, it was the time where uh, Moses talks about going into the promised land with the, with the, uh, with the children of Israel and they said, no, we, we don't want to do that. We want to do our own thing. And then God says, okay, you're going to wander in the, get them, tell them to get ready because they're going to move and they, they don't want to do it because they, they want to, they want to stay where they are. <clears throat> and so God, that's when God says, you're going to end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And it says, and this is the sad thing, it says that the next day, the people got all their stuff together and they came to Moses and said, okay, we'll do it. We're ready to go. And Moses says, no, it's too late. 40 years in the wilderness for you. And I could just in my head see everybody with their luggage and with their stuff. We've made a mistake. We're, we're going to do it. But it was too late. It was too late. And it's so sad. And this moment here where it says, he did not know that the Lord had left him. It's so sad to me. I was going to put up on the screen, would you notice? But I felt it was too sad to put it up on the screen. So I haven't actually made a slide that says, would you notice if the Lord had left you? But it is so sad. And there are times in Scripture where the Bible tells us that God removes the sense of his presence from someone to test what's in them. And it's not because God doesn't know what's in us, but I think it was Hezekiah it was, but the, the whole idea was he removed the sense of his presence from Hezekiah so that Hezekiah would see how he responded to not being able to connect with God or not being able to, to sense God's presence. And how would we respond? How would we respond if we were in a situation where we didn't feel God or we didn't feel connected to God or it didn't, it didn't feel like he was with us? Would we be bothered? I hope we would. Samson was so far, so far gone in terms of his awareness of God and awareness of the gift on his life that when God had left him, when the Spirit of the Lord had left him, he didn't know. And that is sobering for me. Sobering. I don't want to ever be in that position where God's not with me and I don't know. But it's easily done. It's easily done when we're so busy that we hit a routine and we're just doing the routine. And it looks like a good routine because my routine is church on a Sunday and Bible study on a Monday and life group on a Tuesday. And I don't know, worship practice on a Thursday and whatever on a Friday. The routine looks good, but actually my connection to God isn't there because I really haven't taken the time to actually sit with God. I'm just doing, 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 doing. And the sense of routine is what's keeping me going rather than the presence of God, which is what we need. We need to be careful. And so it says, the spirit of the Lord left him and he did not know it. And then the Philistines seized him, they gouged out his eyes, took him down to Gaza, the place that he destroyed in terms of taking their, their gates away. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding in the prison. So he, he gives up his secret because it isn't, I guess in my thinking, it isn't that important to him, so he's willing to give it away. And when he gives it away, he loses his connection with God. And when he loses his connection with God, 
he loses three more things. He loses his vision, he loses his freedom, and he loses his identity. Because they shave his head, he's no longer a Nazarite set apart to the Lord. They take out his eyes so he can't see anymore. And they chain him up and put him in a, in a prison where all he's doing is grinding all day. So they'd have a big wheel set up that you'd put the wheat on. And then they'd usually have an animal that pulled the thing around in, in a big circle. This is what he's doing. He's just pushing his wheel around. Vision, freedom, identity. Three things that he loses because he doesn't anymore have the Spirit of God with him. And we're people who need the Spirit of God to give us vision, to give us focus, to give us purpose, to give us freedom from sin, to be who we're called to be, and to give us identity that we are children of the King. We need the Spirit of God to do those things. And we need to be careful that we don't get to a place where we've just drifted along without really thinking about who we are and where we are and what we're involved in, that we miss what God might be wanting to say to us. Let me also say, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm scaremongering, because I believe it's really difficult to miss what God has for you. I'm very encouraged. I was, as a teenager, this was something that I was really paranoid about, because there's a lot of sermons that I would hear about the call of God on your life, and you can't miss the call of God, and, and all of this. And it used to really mess with my head, because I thought, well, if I missed it? What if I missed the call of God in my life? What if God spoke one day and there was a prophetic word in church and that was the day that I was sick and I wasn't there? That would be terrible. And I've missed the call of God in my life. And I think over the years, I think God helped me to see with a couple of pictures really that the call of God is not a tightrope. It's not a tightrope. It's a huge path. It's not a tightrope. And also, I was encouraged with one throwaway line where it says, the word of the Lord came to them again and again. And I thought, that, that is it. It's difficult. If you, are, if you are someone who follows Jesus, someone who cares what God thinks about you, if you are someone who wants to live in the word, wants to see what God wants to do in you, it is difficult to miss God's calling on your life. Because the word of the Lord will come again and again. And again, and it may be something that you hear from the pulpit, it may be something that somebody says in a conversation, it may be in the lyric of a song, God's word will come to you again and again. It's difficult to miss. So I don't want you to get into the, the mindset of, oh no, what if I miss it? If you care, it is very, very unlikely that you will miss it. But he didn't care. And there was a series of decisions that he made that drove him, took him away from actually being in a position where he would care about what God thought. And so they, they shackled him up. This is something I didn't know. It says they, where is it? Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding in the prison. Bronze shackles. Sometimes when I see things like that, I think, why bronze shackles? Why didn't they just say shackles? Shackles is such a nice word to say. Shackles. Well, it's important because it's in the scripture. And if it's there, it's important. So I looked it up. <laughs> it blew my mind. So they bound him up with bronze shackles. I looked for the meaning of the word, the word in scripture there. And it, it means bronze or brass. It could mean brass. But it also has another meaning. 
only appears twice. So in Ezekiel chapter 16, and I mean, I don't encourage you to read Ezekiel chapter 16 before you go to bed, because it is harsh. It is a harsh chapter, yeah? Wait until tomorrow. Don't read it before you go to bed. Because basically in Ezekiel chapter, chapter 16, uh, God is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, and he's speaking to the, to the city of Jerusalem, but he's comparing them to an adulterous woman. He's saying, this is what you like to me. And it is, I mean, God's not holding anything back. Let's just say that. And in verse 36, I'll just read this verse. It says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you poured out your wealth and exposed your nakedness in your promiscuity with your lovers, and because all your detestable idols, and because you gave them your children's blood, therefore I'm going to gather all your lovers with whom you loved, you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around, will strip you in front of them, they will all see your nakedness. And then it goes on. It gets worse, if you can imagine that. <coughs> but in verse 36, where it says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, because you poured out your lust, it says in a version here, because you poured out your lust and exposed your nakedness and your promiscuity, blah, blah, blah. The word lust there is the same word. It's the same word as they use for the bronze shackles. So Samson was chained with bronze shackles, but actually Samson was chained with lust. It's kind of a picture of his life. And I'd never seen that before. And, you know, I might be stretching it a bit, really. But actually, if we look at Samson's life, he was chained with lust. That was the thing that drove him. And then right at the end of his life, when they chain him in bronze shackles, it's almost like, it's like a signature. It's like saying, yes, this is it. This is what this was about. And so they shackle him up. And then he's just, he's just in a prison. And it's such a sad story, but it doesn't end there. So even just after that verse that I, don't, that I find very sad, where it says, he did not know that the Lord had left him. Two verses later, it says, but the hair on his head began to grow again. And that just speaks to me of grace and hope. The hair on his head began to grow again. And I wonder if, again, just thinking... I wonder if Samson would feel the hair on his head growing, you know, when he's, when he's had a break from the grind. He'd feel the hair on his head growing and think, I wonder, I wonder if God will use me again. I wonder if there'll be an opportunity to do something good again. I wonder. It's interesting that the Philistines didn't keep his hair short. It's interesting that they didn't continually shave his head. <laughs> it's interesting that they didn't do that. And it would have been because in their eyes, because they had discovered the secret of his power, and they'd removed the secret of his power, as far as they were concerned in their understanding of, of pagan beliefs, that, that Samson had shamed himself, and that was it. He would be cut off from, from the gods. So... They weren't bothered about it anymore. They'd found the secret. They'd cut his hair. That was it. It's done. It's over. Because that's, that's how they interacted with their beliefs. But actually, that's not how God interacts with us. That when we make a mistake, we're not cut off. 
that when we do something that's wrong, that's not the end of it for us. There is always an opportunity for us to return to the grace of God. You know, I mentioned Judas before. And if you look at the interactions that Jesus has with Judas, we know that Judas betrays Jesus and that leads to Jesus being crucified, which was going to happen. But all along, if you look at the interactions, there is always an opportunity for Judas to change his mind. There is always an opportunity for him to say, do you know, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm, no, this is, no, I'm not doing this. There's always an opportunity. And in the interactions that Jesus has with him, there's always that sense of grace and that sense of love. There's always grace for us. And so his hair begins to grow. So the, all the rulers were coming into land now. All the rulers of the Philistines had this big celebration. They're all in a temple and they say, let's get that Samson guy out so we can make fun of him. It says he performs. I don't know what he was doing. But I imagine they were just making fun of him, tripping him up maybe because he couldn't see and, and just, just making a fool of Samson because of all the times that in their perception, Samson had made a fool of them. And, uh, and in, this, in this circumstance that Samson finds himself, he says to the servant or to the boy who held his hand, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so I may lean against them. Again, this is... Just an aside, this is another indication to me that Samson wasn't a huge buff guy because even though they've cut his hair, now he's being led around by a child. So they're not afraid of his physique in any way. His, his strength is something that comes from God. So this little boy is leading Samson around and he says, put me, put me where I can feel the temples that support, the, the pillars that support the temple. The whole place is full. There's a whole idolatrous celebration going on. They're singing praises to their God about having Samson delivered to them. And it says, Samson prayed to the Lord. It's worth making note of this prayer. He says, Lord, remember me. Please strengthen me just once more. And then here's the thing that again makes me sad about Samson. Strengthen me once more. And let me with one blow, what? Get revenge. We've gone back to the revenge thing. We've gone back to that spiral that Samson was in before. Let me get revenge. Even, even in this circumstance, even after he's been humbled, there isn't a sense of what do you want me to do, God? It's all about let me get revenge. It is, it is about him. It's about him. And it is sad. And Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against one, his right on one, his left on one. He says, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushes. And obviously, in this circumstance, the spirit of the Lord is on him because he's able to use strength that he wouldn't normally have. And so God hears him, and God answers this prayer. And, uh, and, and all of the people in the temple are killed. So the rulers of the Philistines, the five rulers of the Philistines who paid Delilah, they were in there because it says the rulers of the Philistines were there. Loads of the leaders were there. So their structure would have been, would have been quite hampered by what happens here. And lots of the Philistines were killed. So um, as far as Samson being a judge who helped to start the Israelites being delivered from the Philistines, um, 
this is quite a significant moment. But it could have been different. It could have been different. Samson could have lived differently. Instead of chasing the things that he wanted, he could have spent some time saying, God, what is it you want? You've called me and set me apart and and given me this vow, these rules that I need to follow. What is it you want me to do? There isn't any evidence that Samson actually um, does that. In fact, if we, look, if we look through Samson's life, I'm not going to flick back through the, the four chapters, there are only really two times that I notice that he prays, that he's recorded as praying. Once is after he killed a thousand people and he was really thirsty and he says, seriously, I've just done this amazing thing and now I'm going to die of thirst. Are you going to do something, God? And then God uh, lets water flow out of a rock. And then here at the end, he says, remember me once more so that I can get revenge. So his prayers are quite... They're quite self-focused. They're quite egocentric. When really he could have been, God, you've given me incredible strength. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do with this gift? What do you want me to do with this gift? A question that each of us should really ask Jesus. What do you want me to do with this gift? What do you want me to do with the things that you have given me? And so here we have um, a an incredible picture of a man that God called to do incredible things, who was flawed, who made so many mistakes, and yet the grace of God still enabled him to do some of what he was called to do. All the way through his life, he made so many mistakes, and yet actually the thing that God had said at the beginning, that you will begin to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines, was exactly what he did. But he could have done better. He could have done better. He was, he was up and down his, in his relationship with God, up and down. He allowed his eyes to be turned. He allowed, he allowed his heart and his emotions to lead him. And he ended up in places he shouldn't have been. He ended up doing things he shouldn't have done. He ended up giving away things that weren't really his to give away. And, and in the end, he was in a position where he was broken, without vision, without freedom, without identity. We don't know how long he was in that prison, but it says his hair began to grow, so it would have been a while for his hair to grow. I'm not sure that his hair grew back to what it was before, because that would have been an equal amount of time up to that time, and I don't think that's what it was. But still, after the suffering that he went through, the prayer that we have recorded is, give me revenge. Let me get revenge for my, for my eyes. Let me get revenge for my eyes. Why? This is all coming to me now. Why was he so obsessed with his eyes? Because that's the thing that drew him into all the problems that he had. He saw a woman, I must have her. He saw a woman in Sorek, fell in love with her. He saw a prostitute in Gaza, that he was driven by the things that he saw. And he's like, God, help me get revenge for my eyes. Yeah, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you help us. There is potential in each of us. There are things that you've called each of us to do. And we don't want to miss it, Lord. And so I pray that that where we've allowed ourselves to be distracted or where we've allowed our, our heads to turn or whatever it is, conversations we have, whatever, that can keep us from being the people you've called us to be. I pray that you'll make it very obvious to us. And I pray that you'll help us, Jesus, to live in such a way where we're saying, God, 
What is it you want from me? I love the passage where Mary has the encounter with the angel, tells her all of that stuff, and then she says, let it be to me according to your word. That's what we want, Lord. We want to be able to say, do whatever you want in me. Use me in whatever way you choose. So, Lord, I pray that you'll show us where there's weakness in us. I pray that you'll show us where there's strength. And I pray that you'll help us to hold tightly to you, that regardless of what happens around us, our eyes will be fixed on you. In Jesus' name, amen. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarranty.com.